I hope you have uh, been blessed so far in our time together and we have fellowship together for the last hour, studying God's word uh, in Sunday school. Uh, Man, I'm thankful for our brothers who for the last several weeks have been uh, um, teaching us important doctrines for the Christian faith that we might be equipped as Christians, as believers, uh, to be faithful stewards with the things that God has given us, that we might draw closer to him um, as we serve him, as we love him. Um, and so I'm just thankful for these brothers in Sunday school and equipping classes. Uh, I pray that you, you have been encouraged as well. Uh, be praying for Brother Kevin. Brother Kevin is in Virginia at a church. He's been there all weekend preaching and teaching um, through the weekend leading into this morning's service. And so pray that uh, his time there would be fruitful. Uh, pray that his trip home would be uh, would be awesome and easy going as he rides on the plane. Um, this morning, as you see, we are continuing our study of prayer. We've been studying the the idea or the the doctrine of prayer for the last two weeks. We'll we'll continue this morning uh, with today's sermon, which is titled "The Prayer That God Desires to Answer." The prayer that God desires to answer. For the last several weeks, Brother Kevin has been walking us through the armor of God, uh, in particular for uh, looking at each armor, each piece of armor with intentionality, pausing, focusing. And then for the last two weeks, uh, he's talked about the prayer that Paul mentions that follows right after the armor of God in verses 18 through 20. And what, what Kevin has alluded to in the last few weeks is that prayer is the thing that holds all of this armor together. It's the glue that keeps it all on, all well taken care of. And so he's been guiding us through what well-intentioned prayer looks like to uh, a holy God. And so I'm thankful for Brother Kevin these last two weeks as he's been teaching on prayer. I'm thankful for our brother Biff as well in equipping classes who's been teaching us on prayer. It's been uh, convicting in my own heart as I looked at the text for this week, as I studied this week. Uh, man, I realize I lack prayer in my life. And I've just been bombarded from every direction, from sermons from Kevin, Sunday school, from Brother Biff. And now before my very eyes, I see Yet again, that there is a lack of prayer in my own life, a a lack of seriousness when it comes to prayer in my own life. And so this morning, we're going to look at what we call the Lord's Prayer. Actually, if if you remember several years ago, Brother Kevin took us through the book of Matthew, and we saw that this is really not the Lord's Prayer as much as it is the disciples' prayer. In Luke chapter 11, we get the same prayer, and it begins by the disciples saying, teach us, Lord, how to pray. And Jesus says, well, then pray like this. And so what we have before us is a model. It's not something that the Lord prayed. The Lord's prayer is what we see in John 17 when he is praying in the garden, praying that God's people would be sanctified, that they would be holy, that they would draw close to God. But what we see here is the disciples' prayer. This is the prayer that you and I should be praying, not this exact prayer, not these exact words, not that that's a bad thing, But this is a model. Jesus says, pray then like this. So this is what Jesus does. It's a very familiar text to us. Uh, If you're like me, I I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I learned this prayer, memorized this prayer at a very early age. In fact, as you hear me talk today, I'll probably trip over my words because I have the, the old King James memorized and I'll be preaching out of the ESV. So just excuse me already. Just uh Asking for forgiveness. Uh, But this is a very familiar uh, prayer. The problem often with familiar things to us 
is that we lose the significance of such a thing. Is that not true? That is the case with the Lord's Prayer. We've memorized it. We know it. We, we, we can recite it. But man, we've missed some of the, the, the potent meaning behind each of these petitions. And so my prayer this week has been that we could come back to this prayer, we can see it, that we can grab everything that Jesus intends for us to grab out of it, and that it would radically change the way that we pray as a people. And so that's been my prayer this week. And you notice in this prayer, this is actually found in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. And in the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus deals with three spiritual disciplines. He deals with giving to the needy, he deals with prayer, and then he deals with fasting. And in each of these three topics, each of these three doctrines, the, 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 the caution, the warning is the same. Do not be like the hypocrites. When you give to the needy, don't go flashing around. Here's my $5 bill. I'm giving it to the man on the corner. Everybody look at me. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. When we think about fasting, Jesus says, don't come into the synagogue with a gloomy face, distorted. Oh, I'm so hungry. Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites. And likewise, as you saw when Jared read, he says the same thing for prayer. Don't stand on the street corner. Don't blab away all of these long, repetitious prayers. Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites. And in all three occasions, this is what he says. We see this in verse 2, see this in verse 5, and then again in verse 6. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. If you're looking for the attention of man, Jesus says, you can find it. That's your reward. And that's it. But Jesus says that there's a way to practice these disciplines in a way that would bring glory and honor to our great God and that we would receive much more reward than just the applause of man. In each of these things, we see in verse 4, 6, and 18, he says this, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so as we contemplate, as we, we, we're going to narrow in on prayer, but as we contemplate these disciplines, I think about this month of fasting, this month of prayer, we think about these disciplines. Jesus' aim is to, to correct our selfish desires to get something other than what he intends, which is closeness with the Father. You can have the applause of man, but it will cause you, cost you the applause of God. Jesus says you can't have it both ways. So Jesus, in all three instances, says to do these things in secret. Not necessarily we're wearing a disguise when we help the needy or we're going into a literal closet so no one sees us while we pray. But Jesus is concerned with the heart. What does the heart reveal about when you fast? What does the heart reveal when you give to the needy? And what does the heart reveal when you are in prayer to a holy God? I would encourage you this week to, to read through these first 18 verses as we deal with prayer and fasting in this month of February. That we, that we would ask God, correct, correct any selfish ambition. Whatever I do, Lord, it's for you and to draw close to you. In particular, as I said, I want to hone in on this, this discipline of prayer. And what's interesting about the section on prayer is that fasting gets three verses Giving to the needy gets three verses, but prayer actually gets this extended teaching. 
that Jesus gives us 11 verses. And while it gets the correction of the, the, the hypocrites, not to be like the hypocrites, the warning and then the correction, pray then like this. In prayer, we actually get a model. We don't get necessarily a model in the giving, a model in the fasting. But in the prayer, we get this beautiful model. And in this extension teaching, not only do we get the model, we actually get a footnote in verses 14 and 15 concerning the forgiveness to others. And so Jesus hones in on this idea, this topic, this doctrine of prayer. And Jesus says, do you want to pray in a way that God desires to answer that prayer? And all of us would say, yes. We want to pray in such a way that God would grant our requests. And Jesus says, then pray like this. Pray like this. There's six petitions, six pleas that Jesus calls us to cry out to God with. And these can be summed up in two main categories. These will be our two main points. It's the glory of God, point number one. And then number two, the needs of man. So God-focused, the glory of God, and then we, we talk about the needs of man. And so with that, let us look at point number one, the glory of God. Look again at verses 9 and 10. Jesus says this, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice that when Jesus begins to teach his disciples how to pray, he doesn't immediately begin with the needs of man. He doesn't say, go ahead and cast all of your cares just yet. What Jesus does is intentionally sets before us the glory of God. That everything that we're about to pray, everything we're about to say to our maker is being filtered, being flowed through this idea of the glory of God. In particular, he, he looks at three aspects of this glory. The first, we see God's name, we see God's kingdom, and God's will. So before any mention of needs, before any mentions of wants or requests, Jesus says we should be concerned with the glory of God. Why? Because God is concerned for his glory. He is worthy, Jesus says, of all glory, all honor, and all praise. And therefore, when we approach this holy God, we do so in reverence, seeking to give him glory. John MacArthur says this, prayer is not trying to get God to agree with us or to provide for our selfish desires. Rather, he says, prayer is affirming God's sovereignty, his righteousness, his majesty, and listen, seeking to conform our desires and purposes to his will and his glory. Jesus says, this is why we pray for God's glory, that we would conform, conform everything we want, everything we desire through this filter of God's glory. And so notice first God's name, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. These two beautiful words, our Father. Jesus begins by saying we're not praying to some statue. We're not praying to some dead God we're not praying to some cosmic power. We are praying to a father, a loving father. This implies that we are God's children. This implies relationship. It implies a closeness. It implies an intimacy with a holy God that we get communion with him. 
This God who spoke life into being, who works sovereignly, who controls all things, is called a loving father. Brothers and sisters, we know that our, our relationship with God as being a father comes only through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Prior to the death of Christ, our trusting in the work of Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 5, we are enemies of God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But here Jesus says, because of his work, we can call God Father. You can be taken from children of wrath and placed into children of grace. Our Father. Without Jesus, we have no access to this great Father. I think about Sunday school in Galatians 4 just a few weeks ago. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, listen, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, Paul says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And listen, and if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, we have been given the privilege to utter these words, Abba, Father. This word Abba, it's a, it's a Greek word that really has no good English translation other than daddy. It implies this closeness, this familiarity with the person we are speaking to. Think about this for a minute. Think about the way that you communicate with a father. I think about it in my own life with my own children. They're, the way that they speak to me, the request that they ask of me is way different than the request of all of you. You speak to me in one way, my children, they have something different. There's a bond there that just ha doesn't happen with the rest of us. This is what the Lord, this is what Jesus is pointing us to in these two words, our Father. I, I think about an analogy Tim, uh, Tim Keller used many years ago. He talks about the Lord being a, a king, right? A king and a father. The, the, the God of all creation is the God, is the king of this kingdom. Who wakes up the king in the middle of the night? No one. No one dares wake up the king. If we're all citizens in his kingdom and you have a bad dream, guess what? That's your problem. You're not going to the king and say, hey, bro, you need to wake up. I've got some problems. The only people who have access to this king in the middle of the night when there's a bad dream, when there's a nightmare, is whom? His children. His children don't have that same awkwardness than the citizens of the kingdom. In the middle of the night, when there's a bad dream, the children can run into the king's room and demand his attention. Daddy, daddy, I've had a nightmare. This is what we have with God. Just as the kids of the king of the kingdom have 24-7 access with the father, brothers and sisters, you and I have 24-7 access with this great God. And unlike me, who doesn't like being woken up in the middle of the night. If you're a parent, you probably amen to that. This great God does. This great God delights when his people are in trouble and they turn to him, they cry out to him. This delights our great God. 
then so he is our father. This also implies that, for instance, that, that we are being brought into a family of God. Jesus doesn't say, pray, my father. Jesus says, pray, our father who art in heaven. Brothers and sisters, when you have been saved by grace, you've been brought into a family of God. Oh, this is the beauty of Wednesday nights when we gather together. Our Father, meet our needs. We need you. We are surrounded by brothers and sisters who have been adopted into this beautiful kingdom as well. And this Father, Jesus says, is in heaven. This doesn't talk about necessarily the location where God dwells as much as it speaks to God's sovereignty. I love what John Stott says here. He says, the words in the heavens denote not the place of his abode so much as the authority and power at his command as the creator and ruler of all things. Thus, he combines fatherly love with heavenly power. And listen, I love this last phrase. And whatever his love directs, his power is able to perform. When God sets his love upon you, his power is able to perform. This God is not void of power or authority. No, he is God of all creation. And then notice the next phrase, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this, this petition, this is our first petition, hallowed be your name. As I mentioned earlier, I memorized this prayer as a very young kid. And I always wondered, maybe it's just the way we speak down Ponashan. Why would God want his name to be hollowed? The only thing I know is hollowed is a tree, a rotten tree. Why is God saying, let my name be hollowed? And obviously, now that I'm a little more educated, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. The, the, word, the word is hollowed. And probably because I'm from down the by, you're hearing the same word twice. I promise you it's different if you're reading your own Bible. Hollowed. The word here means to make holy or to make sanctified. It's to set apart. And so what Jesus is doing in, in this petition, hallowed be your name, he's not saying holy is your name, God. He's saying that we would be praying that God's name would be made holy around us. That there's a pleading, there's a, a begging, God, would you glorify your name in this place? This should be our prayer every time we gather. God, glorify yourself in this sanctuary. Is that what our prayer life looks like? God, would you glorify yourself in my life? Let not me be the center of attention, but I want to glorify you. I want to make much of your name. God, would you remove idols from my life that have robbed you of your glory? Is that what our prayer lives look like? Are we praying like Jesus said, hallowed be your name. Father, do whatever it takes to bring glory to your name in the lives of the lost. Whatever it takes, Lord, may you receive glory. Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, let this cry out like of the psalmist be true in our own lives god may you receive glory in my life and brothers and sisters every other request that we'll learn this morning we'll think about this morning comes through this and this should radically change the way we pray i think of a book by brian chapel this is in my notes but it's called uh, uh, 
praying backwards, I think it's called. Uh, and what he, he talks about in this prayer, man, this is in my notes, so hopefully I don't butcher this up too bad. What he talks about in his notes is that we should learn to pray backwards. And what he means by this, we always end our prayers with in Jesus' name, right? That's just a habit that we all have. Uh, whatever we pray for, in Jesus' name, amen. And Brian Chapel argues in this book that we should change the way we pray and to say in Jesus' name and then begin our prayers. Because when we do that, some of the things we pray for seem awfully stupid. God, I need a million dollars in Jesus' name. God, I need a bigger home in Jesus' name. God, I need more money. I need more, I need a bigger vehicle in Jesus' name. And so Brian Chapel argues in that book that it would radically change the way we pray if we consider fully our request. And this is exactly what Jesus is teaching us to do in this petition, hallowed be your name. That, that our prayers, what we think about, what we call out to God for, would come, be filtered through, God, whatever I'm asking for, would your name be made holy in it? And perhaps some of our prayers will change if we, we actually grasp the depth of this petition. And so Jesus points us to God's glory through his name. And then secondly, look that he points us to God's glory through his kingdom. In verse 10, Jesus says, your kingdom come. Again, this is a, a petition. This is a cry out. We might better translate this as you, let your kingdom come now. There's urgency in the original language here. Let your reign come now. Brothers and sisters, when, when you and I are being commanded to pray, let your kingdom come, we are praying for the spread of the gospel. We are praying, asking God to save men and women for his glory. We're asking God to use us as his tools, not the means by which men and women are saved, but the tools and the instruments by which he would use to save people. We know it's the spirit who changes the hearts of people, but we also know that God has called you and I to be the ones who share the gospel. Scripture tells us that we are the heralds of the gospel. We're proclaiming with, with great joy. There's a God who loves you. There's a Savior who died for you. We're called to be ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5. We're called to be stewards of the gospel. We're to share this gospel with diligence. And so the question this morning as we think about this petition, let your kingdom come, do you and I have a kingdom mindset? Are you and I concerned about the kingdom of God? I know if I'm honest, I'm concerned about the kingdom of Tony. Tony, how can we grow this home? How can we grow this income? How can we grow these materials that are in my home? Tony, Tony, Tony. Jesus says we should be praying, your kingdom come. Brothers and sisters, we far too easily get consumed with the things that are temporary. The things that are for the here and now. The, the fleetingness of life will soon be gone. What will you be left with? Brother Kevin says often there's only two things that are eternal, the souls of men and the word of God. Are we concerned for the souls of men? Or are we only consumed in our own little bubble? Brothers and sisters, we have lost the urgency of Scripture that eternity is real. Heaven is real. We're all excited about it. So is hell. Hell is a real place that exists for those who refuse to submit to Christ. 
And you and I have been called to beg people, run to Christ. He saves. Let your kingdom come, Lord. I think of this past Wednesday night as we were praying for uh, those being uh, involved in sex trafficking. Uh, Several men and women came up and their overall theme of prayer was what? Like God, for those that are involved who are leading over sex trafficking, uh, manipulating people, that God would save them. That God would bring justice, right? But that God would also grant mercy and granting salvation to, to the women and the children who, who are, who are being, being trafficked, who are being moved around. What was the prayer? That God would save them, that he would comfort them, that he would heal them. Ultimately, that he would bring salvation. These are kingdom-minded prayers, it's not, hey, can we grow First Baptist Thibodeau 10, 20 more people this week? No, no, no. God, we want to see people in your kingdom. Why? Because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if that is true, we should be eager. Lord, let your kingdom come. Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And listen, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our prayer. Is this your prayer, Philippians 2.9, that God would save men and women from every people group, every language, every tribe, are we consumed with ourselves? When we pray for the God's kingdom to come, not only are we praying that God would spread the gospel through us, we're not only t- talking about the expansion of the kingdom, we're also praying for Christ to return. I think about the book of Revelation, the very end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20. Uh, this is what John writes. He who testifies to these things says this. Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And notice John's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come. Is that you and I this morning? Are we praying that the Lord would return? Are we praying for the day that we will see Christ face to face? Are we praying for the day that justice will be done when Christ returns? When he has proper rule and authority over his creation? If we're praying for these things, it will radically change the way we share the gospel. We're not going to ask God to come now if we're not willing to tell our people about Jesus now. So the longer we can push that off, we become comfortable and complacent. And Jesus says, sense the urgency here. Your kingdom come. Are we concerned about God's kingdom? Are we concerned about retirement? Are we concerned about the return of Christ? Or we're like, man, I I just want to see some grandkids first. Those are things we joke about often, but but where is our heart? Are we looking toward the sky, waiting for the Lord to return? He is coming soon. He is coming soon. So God's name, God's kingdom, now thirdly, God's will. Your will be done, Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven J.I. Packer, I love what he says here. He says, here more clearly than anywhere else, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Not to make God do my will, but to bring me in line with his. This is a difficult petition for us to cry out. 
that God would conform what I want, what I desire, that he would change these things to be what he wants and what he desires. I'm a selfish person. God, I don't want what you want. I don't desire what you desire. I want vacation. I want comfort. I want to lay down in my bed and watch Netflix. What a difficult petition. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here Jesus is calling us to be more concerned with the will of God and conforming our wills into what he wants than we are about our own will. I think we see a great example of this in Matthew chapter 26. I have these on the screen for you to see. Matthew chapter 26 comes right before Jesus is crucified, right before he's beaten, right before Judas is about to kiss him on the cheek and betray him. Jesus takes his disciples into the garden of Gethsemane. He brings them in there. Then he takes Peter, James, and John. He brings them a little further. And he says, hey, stay. Be alert and pray. Don't go to sleep. And then Jesus goes off a little further. And this is what Jesus cries out to God in verse 39 of chapter 26. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Listen, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus finished praying. He goes back to the disciples. They are sleeping. Wake up. Now is not the time to sleep, Jesus says. Wake up, be alert, pray. And then he goes off a second time, verse 44, uh, 42, I'm sorry. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, listen, your will be done. Finish praying, he goes back to the disciples. The disciples are, yeah, you're catching, catching the drift. Jesus wakes them up. Can you not stay awake for one hour? Be alert. He goes off, look, verse 44, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Brothers and sisters, if you're familiar with scripture, you know Jesus is in the garden sweating great drops of blood. Why? Because he knows what the will of God is. He knows what's coming next. And Jesus says, if there's any other way, let it be. Let it be, Lord. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew what was coming. John chapter 12, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now notice, notice his concern, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. This is just what we read in the Lord's Prayer. Glorify your name. And a voice from heaven comes and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus knew the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus knew that the will of the Father was that he would be crucified for his people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Listen, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is why Jesus is, is sweating great drops of blood. He understands what's about to take place. 
And Jesus says, whatever your will is, Lord, I'm ready. If there's another way, please let it be. But I'm ready. Brothers and sisters, is this what you're praying for in your prayer life? That God's will would be done in your life? These are hard things to pray for. They're easy to say, yeah, I want God's will to be done in my life. Find yourself in a tough circumstance. These things are hard to live out. Your family members are dying. Can you still look heavenward and say, your will be done? When cancer comes, we say, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. I trust you. When you lose a job, when all hope seems to be lost, whatever the circumstance, can we look heavenward and say, Lord, I want your will to be done. Whatever that looks like, please do it. Now, now this doesn't mean we can't ask, God, if there's any other way, this is what Jesus did, right? God, family members dying, please, if there's any other way, would you, would you heal them? That's all of our prayers every time we pray. What Jesus is doing is teaching us contentment in the will of God. We can call out to him. We can cry out to him. But we must learn to be content with the will of God. I think of Romans chapter 12 too. We're familiar with this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And then look what Paul says next. What is this will of God? He says it's good, acceptable, and perfect. Brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Jesus, whatever you experience will be good, acceptable, and perfect. On the earthly scene, it may not seem that way. But in the grand scheme of what God is doing in your life, it will be good, it will be acceptable, and it will be perfect. And as we consider these three petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we see Jesus doing is preparing us. He's preparing our hearts before we come to him with our needs, which is point number two, right? We're talking about the glory of God. He's preparing our hearts. Conform us, Lord, into the image of your son. Conform our thoughts into the image of your son. Con 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 conform our, our actions, our, our, our speech, the way we think about you. Conform it. And it's against this great backdrop of God's glory being made known to the ends of the earth that he brings us to point number two, which is the needs of man. Point number two, needs of man. While God is big, while he is over all creation, while he is concerned and consumed with his glory, brothers and sisters, he is also concerned with your needs. This God is not too big to care he loves his children. And Jesus models for us that it's okay to cry out to God for our needs. In fact, the Lord loves it when we do it. Often as we think about the needs of man, we ask this question, why do we pray, right? God knows everything we're going to say before we say it. In fact, this is what Jesus says in verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You know, like, Jesus, what's the point of saying anything? If he knows, the answer is this. Something beautiful happens in prayer. When we truly pray for these things, God's glory, God's name to be hallowed, God's kingdom to come, his will to be done, as we consider our, our needs in light of these things, 
something happens. Our hearts change. Our desires change. Our wants change. Our burden for the lost is changed because we're concerned with the glory of God. And so what Jesus is doing in this second half and the needs of man is showing us that God is not some cosmic Santa Claus ready for you to sit on his lap and just to hear his requ your requests or some genie in a bottle that you can just grant these wishes, Lord. That is not what Jesus is calling us to when he points us to the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer. What Jesus is showing us is that we're coming laying our burdens down and saying, God, have your way. Do what you must in my life. Whatever glorifies your name, this is what I want to give to you. This should be our concern, our burden, that much would be made of God in our circumstances, our lives. And so as we consider these needs of man, Jesus gives us, again, three areas of concern. This is our need for provision, our need for forgiveness, and our need for deliverance. So look with me at the first need in verse 11, our need for provision. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Now the word give here is not a demand. This isn't a spoiled child demanding to have his needs met. This, this word give, it, it, look, children are very good at saying, give me this, give me that. That's, that's, not what, that's not what Jesus is calling us to here. This is a plea that God would provide for daily needs. This is an acknowledgement that we are dependent upon God for everything. God, I need you to give me my daily bread. Without you, I have nothing. Martin Luther says that everything necessary for the preservation of this life is called bread. This includes food, a healthy body, good weather, a house, home, wife, children, good government, and peace. And Jesus says, these are the things we're calling out to God for daily. God, can you meet my needs today? Is this true of your life? Are you coming to the Lord daily? Listen to this, daily. What a radical thought that we should approach God daily. Are we coming to God daily to meet our needs? The problem is, if we're honest, we become very comfortable. We have good jobs, good salaries. While we might not say this out loud, sometimes we think we're our provider, don't we? Everything I have, I earned. I worked for. I don't need God to provide my daily needs. My paycheck is doing just quite well. Brothers and sisters, when, when we are doing well financially, often we tend to neglect God. Our, our dependency, dependency upon God is weakened. Craig Bloomberg says this in the New American Commentary. What a, what a convicting statement. He says, the average affluent Westerner more than likely plans and prays for annual bread, except perhaps in extreme times of crisis. And what he's saying is this. In America, we're one of the richest countries in the nation. In, no, in the world. We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And, and you're like, well, I don't think I'm that wealthy. Compared to some of our brothers and sisters overseas, you're, we are all doing very well. And it's easy, and often it's the case, that we neglect to, to, to remember that it is God who provides for us. 
is that at any moment God chose not to, our lives would be utter chaos. Your paycheck exists because God is gracious. What you have, the abundance of food, is because God is gracious. Let us cling to God. Let us fall on our knees. This is, this is hard, reading this petition as an American. This is hard. It's hard to, to grasp our thoughts around the, the fact that we should be asking God to meet daily needs. But let this phrase, give us this day our daily bread, become a cry that God would rid us of the worship of money, a worship of lifestyles, a worship of mindsets that we, we can just do whatever we want with whatever we have. I, I think this morning in Sunday school, Guy has been very helpful in, in pointing us to, to the fact of, of the more money we have, the more often we're, we're tempted to rob God of his glory and to think that we're just good without him. That is not the case. I love Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. It says this, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Number one, remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then he says this, Give me ne neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Why? He says, verse 9, Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is this Lord? Then he says, on the other hand, if I'm poor... He says, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The author of Proverbs says, Lord, I want to be right down the middle. I don't need too much, but I don't want too little. I don't want, I don't want to be, be, be cursing you because I have nothing, but also know the tendency in my own heart that if I'm rich, I will forget you. And so the author of Proverbs says, put me right down the middle. Is that our prayer? What are we doing with our finances? Are we content with what God has given us? Again, I go back to what I said earlier. It sounds dumb now in light of these things to say, God, I need a million dollars. God, help me win the lottery. God, I need a bigger house. Jesus is teaching contentment here. Lord, help me to be content with what you've given me. Help me to be a good steward of what you have given me. And I think about the Israelites in uh, the book of uh, Exodus, almost said Ezekiel. In the book of Exodus, chapter 16, uh, the Israelites, right, they come out of Egypt, radically have been saved by a holy God. The, the, the sea is split. They walk on dry land. Uh, things come up. They need food. They're walking in the wilderness. And what does God do? God gives them manna. For 40 years, listen to this, for 40 years, Six days a week, God rains down food for his people to eat. Forty years. Not even 40 years old yet. That's a long time. Every day, God providing for the needs of his people. And, as you would guess, the tendency very early on was what? They would go the first day of the week. They would wake up in the morning. They'd walk outside. I mean, they're just literally, here's manna. Here's manna. Putting it in baskets. Here's manna. The tendency was to grab too much, right? And what happened when they grabbed too, too much? I don't know if you remember the story in Exodus chapter 16, all through the book of Exodus. They'd wake up the next morning and think they wouldn't have to go out and grab any new ones. And guess what? What they had grabbed was rotten. The Lord was teaching his people to be dependent upon him for every need. To rely upon him. That he who said he was coming the next day to bring manna was really going to bring manna the next day. 
And so if they gathered too much, whatever was left over was rotten. The next morning, they would go out and they could pick fresh manna again. The Lord also showed them provision in this way. On the, on the Sabbath, they weren't allowed to go out and pick, right? They couldn't work in that way. And so the day before, the Lord would allow them to gather two days worth. And then when they would wake up on the morning of the, man, uh, of the Sabbath, guess what? The manna they had picked was still fresh. This had nothing to do with the store, the lack of refrigeration, or the lack of storage. This was the mercy of God. That he would provide for his people their every need. I don't know about you, when people buy my meal, like, all I'm thinking about is how can I pay them back? What can I do that will make us, not even in that sense again, but, but yeah, what will make us even? Man, I could pay their meal next week, or I can do this. For 40 years, the Israelites had their meal paid for. Imagine that. And you're like, man, if you're not familiar with the story, you're like, man, these, these people must have loved God. They must have been excited. They must have been so thankful. That's not what happened at all. Look at, look at the book of Numbers in Numbers chapter 11. Rather than bringing praise and glory to God, look at what it says. Numbers 11, 4 through 6. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. They were hangry. That's what it says in, in the Tony version. And the people of Israel, listen, they wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. And now our strength is dried up. And listen, listen, there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. The audacity of such a people. All we have to look at is the very thing that God is providing for 40 years for us to eat ungrateful people but it begs the question are you and I content with the very things that God has given us you think about God giving us our daily bread think about the Israelites who were receiving literal daily bread and see how easy they were to complain they said I would rather be in Egypt they would rather be slaves again for at least they had fish it says onions and garlic. There's not even bell peppers for a good gumbo. Like, what's going on here? Isn't, isn't this us? We're very guilty of the same attitude toward God. Always wanting, always demanding more, working more hours, working harder to accumulate more stuff so that we can say we have more stuff. Jesus says learn contentment with what God has given and will continue to provide. And so that's our need for provision. Secondly, our need for forgiveness. Verse 12, Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. John, I love what John Sott says here. He says, forgiveness is as indispensable to the life and the health of the soul as food is for the body. In other words, just as much as you need food to sustain your life, you need forgiveness to sustain your spiritual life. Jesus shows us here our desperate need for mercy from a great and holy God. He says we are debtors. There's, there's five words in the Greek that you could use to, to speak of sin. And Jesus uses the one that puts us in debt to another individual. In, in this case, it, God. That we have sinned against him. That we, we, we have done more than we could ever pay for against this holy God. And God's grace. It's that he has sent Jesus 
that he has forgiven us our trespasses. Colossians 2, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. Listen, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, I haven't paid off my house yet. I got a long way to go. But man, I've heard stories of when some of you have paid off your houses that feeling of debt being relieved is a wonderful feeling, isn't it? I wouldn't know. I'm very far from it. Jesus has relieved our debt against the holy God. Jesus says we must call out for forgiveness of our debts. And while there is no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, 1, what Jesus does teach us here is we should be a confessing people. That while we may have been forgiven from past sins, there are future, uh, current sins, present sins that need to be accounted for. While our status before a holy God will not be affected, we don't go from children to not children because we sinned and then ask for forgiveness at one time. But listen, our communion with God is affected. This is just natural. Think about relationships in your own life. Perhaps with a spouse, perhaps with a, with a good friend. When someone does something to wrong the other, sin against the other, things get really awkward, right? Everything becomes small talk. There seems to be very, very much a lot of distance between you two. Perhaps the texting slows down a good bit. Perhaps there's silence. It becomes real awkward. The same thing happens with our great God. We find ourselves sinning against a holy God on a habitual daily, daily daily level it will affect our relationship with this great God it won't affect our status we don't go from saved to unsaved but our communion with this holy God just as we go to God for our daily physical needs we must go to him daily with our spiritual needs and I love 1 John 1 9 oh my goodness if we confess our sins God is faithful he's just and he will forgive us our sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we consider this model this morning, have you made it a habit in your own life to confess your sins to a holy God? Yes, you've been forgiven. Yes, you know forgiveness will be there when you ask for it. But are you making it a daily, habitual act to ask for mercy from a holy God? Notice the second half of the petition. Not only is Jesus calling us to ask for forgiveness from God, but notice the second half. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Listen carefully. What Jesus says here, the way he words this, is this. God, forgive me of my debts to the measure that I'm willing to forgive others of their debts against me. In other words, God, I want you to forgive me as much as I've forgiven my spouse. I want you to forgive me as much as I've forgiven my coworker, my boss, my sister. Put in whatever you want there. This is what Jesus calls us to pray. N notice again, he says in verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What Jesus is teaching us here is that horizontal relationships directly affect our vertical relationship with the Holy God. This is 1 John. 
1 John, all over 1 John, 1 John 4. If, if someone says, I love God, yet I hate, he hates his brother, he, John says, he's a liar. He doesn't know God. He says, if, if he cannot love his brother who he can see, how can he ever love a God who he cannot see? Jesus teaches us horizontal relationships affecting vertical relationships. In the previous chapter, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he says this, So if you are offering your guilt at the altar, and there remember your brother has, sinned, has something against you, listen, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Secondly, then come and offer your guilt. Jesus says if you're ready to worship a holy God, you get there and you realize there's an issue with a brother, Jesus says hit pause. Go and take care of the brother. Make things right to the best of your ability. And he says, then come back and offer your gift. Now, we must be careful here. Because this can easily seem like what Jesus is teaching us is that we can only have salvation if we're good forgiving people. That our salvation is somehow based upon how much we forgive people. But we know that's not the case, right? We're not saved by works, but by grace. We saw this through the book of Galatians. There's no works we can do to earn salvation. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is showing us that forgiven people are forgiving people. Those of us who have received much forgiveness will be very forgiving people. Jesus is saying the evidence that you have been forgiven by a holy God is the fact that you're willing to forgive other people. Man, I've known some people who have fought and bickered and held resentments toward one another because someone didn't say hello on a Sunday morning. 20 plus years, a relationship going sour because of something so seems to be minor. That directly affects the way you worship a holy God. C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Man, I think, man, we don't have time to go there. Matthew chapter 18, I think about the servant who gets released from the king, right? And then he immediately goes, he finds the person who owes him money, and he begins to choke him out and throws him in jail. That's evidence that that man has never been truly forgiven. Listen carefully. If your family and coworkers do not see you as a forgiving person, how will you ever point them to a forgiving God? Lastly, our need for deliverance. Jesus says, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does Jesus mean, lead us not to temptation? We may be tempted to, to read here, well, Jesus is teaching us that God can lead us into temptation. No, James 1 says, God cannot do that. No one can say they've been tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. So what is God saying here? Or what is Jesus teaching us here? Jesus is helping us to understand our own weakness and our need for God to deliver us from the hands of Satan. Charles Quarles, he says this, that rhymes, Charles Quarles. The disciple is so weak that he is no match for the devil. He needs a savior, not an assistant, a hero, not a helper. He needs a champion who will fight the evil one for him and will snatch him from the clutches of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And while the last petition is forgiveness for past sins and present sins, what we're petitioning for here is that God would protect us from future sins. That God would protect our hearts 
One commentator says, The sinner whose evil in the past has been forgiven longs to be delivered from its tyranny in the future. Is that you this morning? Is this what your prayer life looks like? God, I need protection. I need deliverance. If I'm going to forsake this sin, I need you. I'm reminded of, uh, of the, the old hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We, we all, we, we say that a lot. Notice the next part. Here's my Lord, heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. God, I know I'm going to wonder. I'm prone to it. Seal my heart. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he provides the way of escape that you might be able to endure. Brothers and sisters, let us ask God that he would help us to stay focused on him and that we would lose interest in sin. Oh God, that I would love you and that I would hate my sin. So in conclusion this morning, Brothers and sisters, is this what your prayer life looks like? Six petitions. I'm not saying every prayer that you pray has to have these six things involved, but are you habitually making it a lifestyle, a prayer life, that you are seeking the glory of God? You're seeking his name to be made known to the ends of the earth. You're seeking his kingdom to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Are you content with, with being in his will rather than seeking your own? Are you asking God to meet your needs daily? Are you asking God for forgiveness daily? Are you asking for deliverance? Protect me, Father. Protect me from anything, the schemes of Satan. Protect me. So I thought you this morning, I pray this week would be a time of, uh, this, this day, this week, it would be a time of conviction and reflection. As we think about this month of prayer and fasting, I pray that this would hopefully change the way we pray together. Man, if you're not a believer in, in the room this morning, you have no access to the Father. Everything we just talked about cannot happen until you confess Christ as Lord and Savior and trust in what he's done. And so would you do that this morning if you're an unbeliever? Come to Jesus. He is mighty and he is faithful to save. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness, your protection. Uh, Father, thank you for your holy word. Make us men and women of prayer. Uh, that we would be consumed with prayer. Uh, that when we are busy, we will make more time to pray, not less time. Father, we thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen.